Well, we are reading through the book of Proverbs. We're still in Proverbs 15, and we'll take it up at verse 16. Uh, no, verse 21. Verse 21, and read through verse 26. Proverbs 15, 21. Folly is joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season. How good it is. The path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. We'll end the reading of God's word there. <clears throat> and let us pray together as we come to the reading of the main text. We pray, O Lord, our God, that we would value the gift that you have given us in your revealed word. We would put it in our hearts to delight in it, and to long to hear it and learn it, and that you would write it on our hearts. We pray, Lord, that the psalm we're about to sing would be a blessing to your people here, that we would take it to heart, that it would move us as it should, and that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read Psalm 90. <clears throat> A prayer of Moses, the man of God. O oh Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, 
or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? <clears throat> Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all the days of our life, all, the, all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. <coughs> Just a word about the authorship of Psalm 90. It, uh, the heading claims to be a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And there's legitimate disagreement among uh, good scholars, good Bible-believing scholars, as to whether these headings, these descriptions of authorship, the heads of Psalms, should all be uh, regarded as true. But uh, this attribution to Moses has never been questioned. Uh, until some modern scholars who pour acid on everything in the Bible uh, raise questions about it. But it fits. It fits the experience of Moses and Israel in the wilderness. And so uh, we're gonna, I'm going to uh, treat this as the, as the prayer of Moses. It is a majestic psalm. I have used it often in funerals of unbelievers because they need to know why people die and then preach the gospel. Uh, but the hymn is so, so majestic in its, in its vision and, and uh, content that it's intimidated me, and this is the first time I've ever tried to preach from it. <laughs> uh, there's an outline in your bulletin. Forget the outline. We're just going to work our way through the psalm in three parts. Uh, we have a first part, which is that uh, opening description of eternity to God. And, and, and the confession that God is the dwelling place of his people in all generations. But then following that is a long passage. Uh, speaking of the, not eternity, but the mortality of mankind, of each of us. And not only mortality, but mortality under the wrath and anger of God because of our iniquities. And yet at the end of the psalm, there's a change. There's prayer. There's a hopefulness in the prayer of Moses, and we'll look at that too. So first, the majesty of our eternal God and the wonder of his being the dwelling place of his people. 
Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Let's begin with that second verse. Our God is the uncreated God. Just try to wrap your mind around that. When my children were very young, they say, what do you mean God was never created? <laughs> well, he wasn't, but I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> uh, we all have a beginning. No beginning for God. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. In him is immortality. Life comes from him because he is the one who is full of life and immortality. And it's worthwhile just to sit down and meditate on that for a while. And verse 1 declares that this God, the Lord Adonai, sovereign ruler, this God, this Lord, has been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, that's open to two possible understandings. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, uh, preaching uh, in Athens on the hill of the area, there's a court, it's really kind of a religious court, and uh, somebody showing up new in Athens with some new philosophy or religion had to make his case with the court or be tossed out of town. That's my understanding anyway. And so Paul's presenting uh, his understanding of God and challenging the idolatry of the Athenians. And uh, in his discourse, he quotes their poems, or, or their poets, rather. And, and he says <clears throat> that uh, God, the God who's not made with human hands, who doesn't dwell in houses that people dwell in, that people make, uh, this God is made from one man, every nation, of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Uh, he's saying that of mankind generally, humanity generally, in him we live and move and have our being. It's an in interesting. Uh, but I don't think that's the sense in which Moses is speaking. I think that's clear from later in the psalm. He speaks of us. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. What is God's steadfast love? Trace that through the psalms and the prophets and Deuteronomy. God's steadfast love is his covenanted love, the love he has pledged in his covenant with Israel, his chosen people. And so he speaks of, he speaks, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Again, verse 15, let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. Uh, so I, I think that Moses clearly has in mind the people of the Lord people the Lord has chosen to be his own people uh, in all generations. Uh, from the time of Adam and Eve and Seth, down through the 
generations. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the patriarchs, and uh, two covenant people of the Lord gathered at Mount Sinai. Now, yes, uh, Paul does say in Romans uh, 9 that they're not all Israel who are Israel, who are of Israel. And so there was a distinction made by God between uh, those among his covenant people who in unbelief, break the covenant constantly and are not, in the long run, not in the ultimate sense, truly his people. And those who, uh, believing his word, fearing him, humbling themselves before him and worshiping him and not idols, uh, truly are his people. He has been, in all generations, the dwelling place of his people. We may be pilgrims in the earth, we may have no lasting and true home here for ourselves in this world. Or maybe you have a lasting home in this world, but don't think it's your real home. Be clear on that. Uh, I know over the years, my wife and I have lived uh, in 11 houses in six cities uh, since uh, we were married. And people sometimes when they meet you, they'll say, where are you from? <laughs> well... How much time do you have? <laughs> uh, but then we'll also say, sometimes I'll also say, but our home is wherever the Lord puts us. Because our home is the Lord. And if we go to the next Psalm, Psalm 91, uh, I lost the page and I'll try to quote from memory and botch it. Uh, Psalm 91 uh, speaks of him who dwells under the shadow of the Almighty. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That's a beautiful picture. <clears throat> and it speaks to us of where our true home is. It is under the wings of the Lord, before his face, and as he is pleased to come and make a home in us by the gift of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that just staggers me sometimes when I think about it, that God makes his home in us. But in that union we have with Christ, he comes and dwells with us, but we are dwelling with him in the heavenly places at the same time. Oh, but the psalm takes a turn in verse 3. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. God is eternal, but we are mortal. We have a beginning in conception and birth. And as for our earth, earth, earthly life, it has an end for every one of us. Death. Death. And it's not accidental. God you return man to dust. When did he do that? 
He did that when Adam sinned. And God denied Adam and Eve access to the tree of life. And God said to them, dust you are and to dust you shall return. He made them out of dust. And decay, the decay of death, the decay of the grave returns us to dust. Unless you spend $15,000 making sure your body never decays. That's really, that's really a, a vain project, isn't it? We are mortal, and we are mortal because God has made us mortal. Not in the beginning, but as a consequence of our sin. Now, strange that the next verse should be a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday, as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. I puzzle over that verse. How does it fit the context? Well, I think it fits it this way. For God, a vast length of time, it's just nothing. And so think of our brief lives, maybe 70 years, maybe 80 years. We've got a 90-year-old here. Maybe. Maybe long like that. But what is that to God's thousands of years are but an instant, like a watch that is over in the night? We are just a flicker of transience. Transience? Uh, We pass away. We're like a dream. We flourish for a while in this world like grass. And then we fade and wither. I'm fading and withering. Some of you are springing up like new grass, children. (laughs) But someday you're going to fade and wither. And it may take you 60, 70 years to get to the fading and withering. But it's still, it's still passing away. Now, that has, uh, that fact, the fact of human mortality, has, uh, has provoked all kinds of comments from philosophers. But it gets worse, doesn't it? Why, why has God commanded us to return to the dust? Verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger. Your wrath, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our, secrets, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, maybe by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? It's pretty grim. We must not think that the anger of God is like the anger of men. Somebody does something I don't like and I flare up. It's not considered. It's spontaneous. Things come out of my mouth that should never come out of my mouth because you made me mad. 
You know how anger works with us, how anger works with you, maybe. God is not impulsive. He is not unthoughtful. And speaking of his anger, speaking of his wrath, is speaking of the fact that our rebellion against him who made us in his likeness, who blessed us with everything we need for life and happiness in this world, that our sin against him is heinous. It is heinously ungrateful. It is repugnant. Sometimes scripture speaks of it as being an abomination. An abomination, well, that's, that's something that makes you throw up on the ground when you encounter it. It's that awful. Because our rebellion against God is so, so uncalled for and contrary to all that he is and all that he does for us. Even if, even if we die without ever coming to faith in Christ and spend eternity in hell, the years we live in this world are filled with the mercies of God. We're blind to them. We're blind to them by nature. We resent what we don't have. We're not grateful for what he does give. And rebellion, refusing to obey his commands or sneakily pretending to obey his commands while in our hearts we're not really obeying them. What is that? The height of cheekiness and insult to God. And so God's anger is his proper and just, holy proper and just response are wholly unjust, uncalled for, inexcusable sin against him. But it's repeated over and over in these verses. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. All our days pass away under your wrath. Who considers the power of your anger? It's repeated over and over again. Why? Well, because we should consider the power of God's anger. We should take that very seriously. Adam's sin led God to deny him the tree of life and impose a sentence of death on him and Eve and the children after them. Not, not, instant, uh, not instant and eternal death in hell, but what does the apostle say in Ephesians 2? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are dead toward God. We are, there's no fellowship between us and God until he restores it. Who considers the power of your anger? We ought to ponder. We ought to meditate on and ponder the reality and the truth of God's anger. The power of it the justice of it, its inescapableness if we go on living in rebellion. It is tragic when people refuse. It is tragic when people go on with their life as they want, denying accountability to God and scoffing at the idea of answering to him on the day of judgment. What a rude awakening death will be to so many people. 
Now, if Psalm 90 ended there, it would be something Nietzsche might have written or some existentialist author like Sartre. Despair, existential angst. Life is meaningless because death ends it all. And what have I accomplished? Nothing. Well, the psalm doesn't end there. <laughs> the psalm continues with prayer. Moses has hope. And I think we can see more clearly even than he why hope is warranted. Two parts to this prayer. One is just verse 12 and the, rev, the, uh, the rest of it is 13 through 17. But verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, he's asking God to do something. It's a prayer to God that God would do something. And I think maybe he's, you know, looking out over Israel. What have they done? They have slapped God in the face over and over and over again. They have not taken seriously the anger of God, even though it has fallen upon them time and time again. And I think Moses is praying that God would have mercy on them. And he'd begin to have that mercy by teaching them, teaching us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, Psalm 9, verse 10 tells us that the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Yes, it is. To know and believe that there is an almighty God who created and rules the universe down to the smallest event. A God who holds our lives at his mercy and on whom we depend for everything a God before whom we will stand on the day of judgment. It is, it is the very beginning of wisdom to take that God seriously. To disregard him is folly. Folly, to live as though I don't know what I wrote there. <laughs> oh, to live, to live without thought of God in view of our sin. That's folly. To live as if we are masters of our fate. That's folly. To live today and tomorrow as if we will never be snatched from this life to give an account to God. Remember the parable of the rich fool. And he built new barns, put all of his stuff in them, and he said, ah, soul, now you can sit back and be at peace. And God said, you fool. Tonight your soul will be required of you. That's folly. And it is the beginning of wisdom in, 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 a, in another sense for us to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves to know that because of our sin we deserve God's holy and just anger that we deserve death as his curse, that we know that we have no power to add one second more to our life. That is the beginning of wisdom. 
but we can say more. We can say more than Moses says here. He prayed in this way because he hoped in God's mercy. And he had a glimpse of the coming Savior promised first to Adam and then to the patriarchs and to Moses. He had a glimpse of the coming Redeemer. But we have seen him. We have seen him in the gospel. We have seen him in the declarations of the apostles preaching the gospel in Acts. We have seen him in the declarations of Paul and Peter uh, in Hebrews and Revelation revealing to us our Savior. We have seen him as he bore the curse of death for us. We deserve to be under that curse. Psalm 90. But he came under the curse of Psalm 90, and he bore it for all of those who turned to him for mercy and deliverance and salvation. Our lives here are short and fleeting. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Mix it up a little bit. But the point is, eternal life is opened before us and before all who turn to God for mercy and the forgiveness of their sins. That is clear to us in a way that I think it wasn't perhaps altogether clear to Moses and the patriarchs. They knew, they knew a good thing was coming. They knew that God was going to do something that would be a great blessing to them. Abraham saw the city that God would build. He saw it by faith uh, and so on. But we are privileged this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of Christ's ascension to heaven. We are privileged to see it uh, far more clearly in the word of God. We read Psalm 90, not as if we were Jewish rabbis who don't believe that the Messiah has come. We read Psalm 90 in the light of the fact that the Son of God has come and that he does bestow on sinners the wisdom that answers the prayer of Moses. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. But he goes on. Return, O Lord. Now, this is the answer, isn't it, to verse 3, where he said, You return man to the dust, saying, Return, O children of men. And now here, return, O Lord, you return. Return to us with your mercy. Return to us with your favor and your grace. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, the love that you promised to your people in your covenant and that you have sealed in the blood of Christ, your Son. Have pity on your servants. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Uh, I think that's probably rhetorical, uh, that uh, Moses probably doesn't want to count the days they've been wandering in the wilderness. They say, okay, give us 40 years, 40 years of blessing and peace, and then you can... I think, he's, I think he wants more. And 
God gives us more. God gives us more. God's answer to Moses' prayer in Christ is infinitely more. Whatever, however we count the years of our affliction in this world. What does Paul say? They are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us. Romans 8, verse 19. He prays, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to the children of men. And the Lord has answered that prayer for those who believe in Christ. We have seen his work in Christ. We have seen his work, well, in the history of the church, preserving the bride of Christ through all the trials and troubles that she has gone through and setting before us an everlasting kingdom. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, what was the work of their hands? Was Moses thinking of his own work, leading Israel from slavery in Egypt to the border of the promised land and following him, Joshua leading them in, and God granting to them what he had promised of the land? Uh, what would Israel's work be then? It would be to trust God and enter that land to conquer it with God's only with God's help. It would be Israel's work to work that land for the glory of God. It would be Israel's work to worship God according to his word in that land. And for a generation, much of that uh, they did. But then you read the book of Judges. It's a sad story of constant rebellion, constant mercy being shown them uh, by God and restoration, revival, and then down again. Read the Kings, first and second Kings. It's a sad story of man's fickleness and unfaithfulness, but also a story of God's faithfulness to his covenant. And us, who have seen the fulfillment of God's covenant promises in Christ to us? What is the work we are called to? Well, Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. This is your reasonable worship of God. Uh, we're here to worship God together, and that is in keeping with God's command. That's a good thing to do. It's a thing we must do. It's a privilege. But every day of our lives is an opportunity to offer ourselves as living thank offerings to God for all that he has given us in Christ. That's our work. Called to be an accountant, called to be a physician, called to be a furnace repairman or a farmer or whatever you're called to be, doing that to the glory of God is what God called you to and pray establish the work of our hands upon us but I think more than that uh, the work he has called us to is the work of living in such a way that we make Christ known to those around us 
church is calling to evangelize, the calling of every Christian, to let your light shine before the world so that they may be drawn to your Savior. And finally, the work of worship. I mean, actual corporate formal worship. That, that's labor. The word used for worship in, uh, in Romans 12.1 is the word that means labor, work. The work we do to serve God is the worship that we bring him as we bring him now. All of these are ways in which God has called us to labor and in which we pray that God, that God would establish the work of our hands upon us. God established the work of Jim's hands as he works as a missionary uh, in this presbytery, planting uh, seeds that may be new churches. Uh, all of that is the work that God has called us to. And you know, for the final word here, I, I want to share with you 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It's the great resurrection chapter. And uh, Paul is asserting over and over the magnificent resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and what it means for us. And his closing words are, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, that is, in his death, in his resurrection, in his dwelling with us by the Spirit, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Our Father, please uh, grant the prayer of Moses to be true of each one of us here, that we would take you very seriously, that we would not uh, minimize or trivialize uh, the wrath uh, that our sins deserve, but that we would magnify Jesus Christ who bore them for us, that we would not be brazen and bold and think that we can be the masters of our own fates, but know that we are a dream that passes by. And unless we live in Christ, uh, that dream will come to an end in horror. So Lord, we do pray. You make us mindful of the work you call us to, that you would give us a heart to do it, and that it would please you uh, to establish that and glorify yourself. We pray in Jesus' name.